Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Maxine Mackey talks to Julian Wheatland. Julian has a lifetime of experience as a CEO, driving profitable growth and scaling organizations like Hatton International, Cornerstone FS, and currently Brava Systems. His experience also includes winding down Cambridge Analytica, proving his strength as a leader in the midst of a PR and media crisis. His belief as a leader is that everyone in your team is a talent managing their own careers. If you're not helping them achieve their goals, they're not staying. Let's find out more about Julian. We're thrilled to have you as guest today, Julian. Thank you so much for, for joining us. You're very much known as an expert for driving profitable growth and scaling organizations. Um, to set the stage, could you please kind of introduce yourself to the Labour Sessions audience and really give us a sense of your leadership journey? Sure. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm an engineer by training and uh, I'd started my career in manufacturing. Uh, uh, that was a, a, a large 24-7, 365-day-a-year factory manufacturing high-voltage electric cables. And I ended up running that factory. Uh, and then I left from there and went into management consulting. I was with PA Consulting for um, uh, a few years. Uh, and that was at the time of the dot-com boom. So we were helping large corporates work out what to do with this thing called the internet that was coming down the road as they stood like glazed rabbits in the headlights of an oncoming truck. Um, and... Uh, from there, ended up taking a team out of PA Consulting and setting up an independent consultancy called uh, uh, Eden Gene, again, to do the same thing, corporate venture consulting. Uh, and from there, I went into investment management uh, and I ended up running a, um, a large technology investment fund uh, investing in the fields of uh, clean tech and security technologies. When the financial crisis came along and there was no money to invest uh, anymore, then I set up Hatton International, which was a technology commercialization business, providing technology commercialization services to large defense and aerospace contractors in the countries that had bought their equipment. Um, and then 2015, I got a phone call from um, someone who'd been a founder in a company I'd invested in when I was um, uh, investing money. Um, and uh, he, uh, uh, the company he had set up uh, was a company called SCL Elections. It became Cambridge Analytica. And he called me up and he said, this thing's scaling um, really fast. I need some help. So I went in there to help him uh, run that. Half my time um, at the beginning of 2015. And by the middle of that year, I was more than full-time and COO and CFO as we took it from 12 men in a basement behind the Japanese embassy in London to 120 people across four offices on two continents. Because Cambridge Analytica was famously good until it wasn't, um, and then it got itself into uh, media difficulties and others. And at, at, in the end, I um, uh, uh, had to take over as chief exec uh, in order to uh, clean up that mess and um, uh, tidy up the situation. Since then, uh, helped some friends in the music industry set up a private equity fund in New York to buy music royalties. Um, then in COVID, I took over as... Um, uh, CEO of a fintech company here in London uh, that was doing international payments and multi-currency account services for corporates. And we scaled that, listed it on the stock market. And today I'm CEO of uh, a company called Brava Systems, which is um, 
a uh, an enterprise management system for the real estate industry. I mean, what a, a kind of a, a breadth of experience, and and it and when you kind of showcase your leadership journey, Julian, it's really obvious how you've been able to pick up and and move with. I think some of the changing trends, moving into consulting, helping many businesses kind of embrace, I guess, the the first phrase into digital, and then from that working in kind of I guess dig- born in digital companies which is um you know I think fascinating the experience you have running and scaling them and also when you've had to manage conflict and and issues in the outside world with them as well so um so so that's awesome but let me let me take you back to I, I think that um you said maybe um a while ago that one of the most important questions a business can really um place is what business model should we adopt and I guess that became more of a pressing issue in with the kind of a, a, with digital transformation and all the new business models that have broken through could you dive into that a little bit more for us because um, I'm curious if you think that that if you still think it's such a critical decision today and if the the statement still rings true for you yeah, sure. And 100%, I think it's as critical today as, as it ever was. And it's not, it's not just a feature of digital companies, but, but it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a common issue that technology companies in general face. Um, and you know, the, the reality is, is that most entrepreneurial technology companies start with the technology or maybe an idea of, of a technology. And it's usually based and the excitement is usually based around what the technology can do uh, and then often the needs of the customer are retrofitted to the brilliance of the technology um, and a, a, comp- a compounding problem is that you know virtually every engineer that I've ever met thinks that customers will use technology in the way they would and of course most customers are not um, as technology savvy as the um, uh, as the as innovative engineers and so it's a question of matching technology to a real customer need. Um, and then when you've done that, it, it's a question of thinking about, well, all right, but then where do we sit in the supply chain? And this is really a question of, of where, can, where can you add the most value? So let me, th- let me think of an example. Imagine that you came up with a new technology for, let's say, testing pathogens like COVID or, you know, for the next pandemic um, in an innovative way. So you could develop new tests. You could make the machines. You could develop the reagents and you could manufacture the reagents. Um, Then you could distribute the machines and the reagents. Or you could, for example, sell the machines or provide the machines on a lease basis. There's a whole range of different roles within that supply chain and different ways of delivering the product to the market or exploiting the technology. And each one requires a specific set of skills and capabilities. And, you know, there's often a tendency to try and do everything. Oh, we've come up with this really great way of um, uh, of testing pathogens so we can make machines and we can sell them and maybe we can we can even perform the tests as well and so the, but the truth is you're unlikely to be good at everything and you're very unlikely to be as good as other people in the market 
who specialize in particular elements of it. And so the more, by trying to do everything, you run the risk of, you, you increase the likelihood of failing. So it's a question of looking at the market and looking at the supply chain and thinking, where can you, where can you add the most value and be excellent? And so, so a good example of this is Arm Holdings. So Arm Holdings designs microchips that are in pretty much every mobile and smartphone in the world. But all Arm does is do the design. It doesn't manufacture them. It doesn't make mobile phones. It, it's, it's, it's never moved down the supply chain. It's specialized at being really excellent at what it does well, which is design. And it's grown into a multi-billion organization by doing that. It really resonated with me when you were talking about um, engineers creating technology that then often businesses are forced to kind of a retrofit for a customer need or a pain point. Um, it made me think a little bit actually about open banking and the promise of open banking because I was just thinking about this this, this week. If we think about how many, like on paper it sounds great, the ability through open banking and it's regulated for an individual to connect all their bank accounts to get this holistic view of their finances, bring their pensions in, more investments and, and, and their various bank accounts to get insights on their money. But the reality is there are some customers that may use that all the time in a very de in that kind of a dedicated bucket, but that's a really small number. And the reality, the reality is, many people will do it once, and there's not stickiness and engagement to go back to it. And it's something that on paper sounds like a no-brainer. We must do this, but the reality is, I don't think it has the level of engagement that perhaps everybody thought it would. And it's like a good example, I think, of the technology and being something really interesting and new, but actually, where does it fit into someone's life? Yeah, I think I think you make a really good point. Uh, open banking is delivering value to the banks, uh, uh, but but not necessarily designed around or delivering or addressing, I should say, addressing a need that customers feel. And actually, it's, it's a really good example of a technology that when it was first introduced, it didn't even really work that well. And so many people's first experience of open banking was a bad one. And, you know, banking is really important to people. It, and so as soon as they start to get nervous around the technology, then it makes it really hard to attract them back again um, to, uh, 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 to give it another go, even as the technology is advanced. Yeah, I think a lot of the kind of uh, the for a lot of financial companies, open banking offered the opportunity to do partnerships, but really open up access to customer data. I think that was really a big kind of a, the, a core driver for, for for open banking. And I know you've said before that every company now is a is a data company, and I think you gave an example of you know a coffee shop may know your preference, what you like to drink, when you normally drink it. Um, what's your take on how companies are going to handle and, and use our, our, our data as a future, someone who kind of leads data-led organizations? Data collection and use is is prevalent and it's not going away. It's it's going to become more. And, you know, it, it, it can be used for good and, and it can be used for harm. It does add massive value to um, uh, to the way that we go about our daily lives today, even even though we don't necessarily see it. 
Um, it streamlines what we're doing. It, it enables us to easily access the things that we want, the things that we're interested in. And so we all get a huge amount of value out of this, whether it's from the supermarket to social media. Um, but I think the, the the key thing to to be cognizant of in here is that some people are more comfortable with this than others. And so there needs to be a choice yeah. and people need to be able to make a choice. And for that, there needs to be transparency. And so organizations need to enable people to know what's going on and be able to make a choice. Now, I'll give an example. Um, you know, Apple has a very tight policy around data and lots of people enjoy that about Apple and lots of people pay a huge amount for Apple phones um, and um, and they get that benefit. But on the flip side of that, then there's billions of people around the world that don't have that luxury, are comfortable with sharing their data and are, are able to access services and indeed phones by enabling companies to use that data to support an economic model for them. And so it's really important that the choice is there. Then it's quite interesting. Sometimes if I'm speaking uh, at events, I get there's a, there's a clear difference, I think, in in age. So it, it often if I'm speaking at an event, let's say at a, in a university, and um, I'll ask the audience, would you prefer to keep all of your data private and just see random ads? Or would you prefer to share your data and see ads about the things that you care about? And, you know, in, in, a, in a younger demographic in a university, almost to a man, they'll say, share the data, we don't care. Um, but, you know, as you move up the age range, at, you know, maybe more um, professional events or, or established events with all, older people, then there's a marked shift. But the most important thing is that people are able to choose. And there's, I guess there's always a, a, a trade-off, especially on social media. You're sharing information, um, but you're getting more personalised content. Um, and there's, I think there's, there's always a trade-off. And I'm, I'm curious, what would be your advice to leaders in big organisations on active data stewardship? And how they are protecting their data and their their, their company data and, and and really how they approach data stewardship. I think this is really a really important thing for all organisations and corporations. You know, at, at the very least, it's a brand issue. Um, in the worst case, and I know this from experience, it can be an existential issue. Um, it's really important that. The company doesn't adopt a style of just expecting people in the company to know what the right thing is and to do the right thing. Um, organizations need to actively manage their policies around data. They need to have a clear policy. They need to have a clear ethical position about what they do do and what they don't do. And additionally, they need to have within the organization processes and procedures for the employees to perform to. And so employees who are coming up with new ideas and new clever ways of accessing data or collecting data or using data, they need to know when to escalate a question of, is does this fit with the policy or not? 
And they also need to know how to escalate that. And there needs to be, because it's so important, there needs to be board level governance around this um, so that decisions can be taken that that are in line with the brand values and the, and the data policies. And I think that, you know the big mistake that organizations can make is assuming that people know what to do and not giving them the tools to be able to do the right thing. And I think there's parallels with even customer service operations. You know, there's a there's a way in which everybody may expect people in their company to talk to customers, and then there's a reality of it. So the importance of procedures, policies, and the, I guess an open dialogue on those things, um, because you may um, you know that you have to enable people to to do their role. Um, and not have wild expectations if you don't have the support system in place. Um, and let me ask you this. It was interesting when you're talking about um, data stewardship, because you're talking about um, even board-level governance. I don't know if this is a bit of a silly question, but in your experience, where do you think, where have you seen the best example of like data leadership, or where does it sit in a leadership team? But is there, is you know, have you seen some organizations data sets with technology and others with, the CEO or the COO office. Um, I'm curious if there's any kind of, a, if you've got any kind of a secret source of, of best practice where kind of a ownership of data and stewardship should sit, sit in an organization. Certainly within Europe, with organizations that are um, uh, compliant with GDPR, they, they, they need to have a, um, a nominated individual that's responsible for their data policy. But that's, you know, the risk of following regulation in this is that you run the risk of just ticking boxes. And so you need to think practically around how does it manifest within the organization. I don't think that it really matters whether it's the direct, the chief technology officer or if it's the chief financial officer uh, or the chief operating officer at the board level that has responsibility for ensuring that the organization runs, has a data policy uh, um, and, and runs in accordance with it. But the important thing is that it's at the board level and that the board talks about it because you know many of these things are nuanced. Um, and so it's important that the board discusses it and uh, reaches a combined decision as to, as to whether or not one thing is acceptable and another thing isn't. And I guess leadership often means taking, guiding a team through transitions. Um, and you've had lots of experience with this in companies you've worked out and mentioned and Cambridge Analytica earlier. Um, can you share your advice on how to inspire and lead change successfully in an organisation? Yes. So, so I think one of the things that I realised early on in my career is that people need leadership. In taking a leadership role, you're not imposing yourself on people. People look for someone to take a lead and to set a vision and communicate it and marshal them and help them understand their roles within that and what to do to deliver it. And so communication is the most important thing in a change situation or a crisis situation or a transformation situation it's essential to share the vision very very clearly with all of the employees 
explain why the change is happening, explain how the change is going to happen, and explain the benefits of the change, not just for the company, but also for the employees. And it's important to invest time in the, in the staff, invest in the people, and show them how the new way of working will be. And in doing that, you give them a shared ownership of the new world, of the destination, and indeed the opportunity to comment on it and, and contribute to it. And most importantly, the skills to operate in it. So effectively, it's think of a football team. Now, everybody in a football team knows that the objective is to get the goal in the back of the net. But equally, everybody in the team knows that we've all got different roles. She's going to be on the right wing. He's going to be in goal. There's the striker. But it doesn't stop them contributing when the ball comes loose in a particular area of the field. They don't stand back and say, that's not my job. They all understand what the shared goal is. And successful transformation is about sharing that goal, letting people see what the future is going to be and believe in it, and empowering them to, um, uh, to get there. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. And I'm, I'm curious if you've got any thoughts um, using the, the, the football analogy, if you're in the, the, the second half in the last maybe uh, last quarter of the match and the momentum and pace has dipped a bit and people are getting a bit nippy with each other. Do you have any kind of thoughts that you can share around maintaining momentum and keeping teams motivated um, during change? Because I've often seen a bit of change fatigue in organisations that I've worked at. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what advice would you be giving from the sidelines um, in the second half? Yeah, if I was... If I was the coach shouting at the team, um, uh, well, I wouldn't be shouting. Uh, that's for. I think there's a, th th there's a few elements to that. Um, I've already said communicate, and I would say communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, I think that it's important to think think of an organisation as like <clears throat> as like a bed. And it's a network of coiled bed springs. And you can try to move one spring on its own, but as soon as you let go, it will snap back. And so when you think about transformation and change within an organization, it's really important not to think about this group of workers and how they should change or how their work should change, but it's essential to think about the organization around them and that organization's expectations of them are matched with the change that's going on. And actually, actually that's often um, a, um, uh, a key cause of fatigue because it's hard work to act in the new way. And so think about the transformation 
as an organizational as an organization not just um a, a specific group or department or work area the, the other thing i'd say is that resistance to change comes from three places the first one is that change requires effort and energy the next one is that it causes worrying concern about security and the third one is it causes worrying concern about ability am i going to be able to do this job in this new job so to address them and this is what i would be thinking about in the first in in in, in the final quarter is you know by communicating the vision and letting everybody see what and why and the importance of it and the benefit of it this drives energy and motivation but and and then also people require reassurance open conversations about what's going to happen to the organization and them and their ro roles in order to reduce the insecurity and then the third thing most important is training training gives people the skills and ability to be able to work in the new world um and i think but you know by addressing those resistances and recognizing that there's an entire organization that needs to be on board with the change not just a group of workers is the way to ensure that the momentum carries through i'm going to really carry trouble a lot of our conversations so far, I think it's really the empowerment of people so so they know what to do with the right processes and policies so that they can perform well. Because I think that's human nature. People people want to kind of uh, achieve their goals at work. They want or to, 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 to do all these things. It was interesting talking about, I think, the discomfort can come from, you know, the fear of the unknown and change. But um, I also think that I'd hit Murray kind of abilities with football analogies. I'm not naturally a very sporty person. So I'm going to shift us slightly and ask you to tell us a bit more what's on the horizon for you as you're kind of a, a building and scaling a, a new organization, which is quite exciting. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I've recently uh, taken uh, over as um, uh, in, in a new role as chief executive of um, Brava Systems, which um, which is a, a fantastic uh, technology platform. Um, it's it's what I'll call a, a light and agile enterprise management system. <clears throat> excuse me for the real estate industry, um, and and I say light and agile because I want to contrast it from everybody's perceptions of what an enterprise system, an ERP system, usually is, which is monolithic and inflexible, and you end up having to re-engineer the organisation around it. Um, and so it, it's it's a really great technology, and it's a great it's a great honour and a pleasure to um, um, uh, be given the uh, uh, the responsibility to lead it. And so, you know, we have the potential to transform the workplace of our customers. Um, but you know, Brava Systems, to speak frankly, it's a, it's a technology led company. It's come from having focused on developing the technology and they've developed a brilliant technology, but it, it, it has many of, you know, the typical issues that, that I've already spoken about that, you know, technology led companies have. And in addition, because it's, it's, it's groundbreaking with all, as with all disruptive technologies, we have now a need to educate the market about what we are and what we can do. And, you know, that's particularly difficult in a corporate environment with selling to corporates 
because corporates are you know, understandably conservative. So we have a transformation that we, we, we need to um, undertake within Brava. We need to focus on our customers, markets, uh, and products. And so it becomes less about what can we do and more about what do customers want. And again, we, we too need to think about what is our business model? Where do we sit in the supply chain? What partners should we have? How do we go to market? Who are our customers going to be? And then having done that, uh, we need to build capability in areas where we are frankly currently lacking in skills. And also I'm poignantly aware that everything I've just described means change for everyone. It's not just about bringing in a bunch of new wonder kids and then everything's right. It means everybody currently in the organization needs to change the way that they behave and the way that they work, as well as supplementing it with uh, new people. So it's very, very exciting. I'm, um, uh, I'm really, really amped up about it. Oh, wonderful. Well, um, we, we look forward to following your journey. Um, and I think as you kind of embark on this new role, I'm curious um, where you go to go for inspiration and where you kind of feed your creative brain and, and, and keep on the the pulse of interesting things that you can kind of feed into um, Barbara and other companies you're associated with. Uh, so where do I feed my creative brain? Honestly, <laughs> in the kitchen. Um that's that 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 cooking is my creative outlet, um, and so uh, uh, that's that's where I restore my energy. And that's where I um, uh, uh, that 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 that's where I can be innovative in a safe environment, um, and uh, I can get a huge uh, amount of satisfaction from that. So um, yeah, I would I would say my the recharge of my creative brain happens uh, happens in the kitchen. Amazing. And do you have uh, do you have some favourite dishes? Oh yes, a few. Uh, I mean, I can tell you that um, my children's favourite dish that I cook is a seafood laksa. <laughs> oh, amazing! Yeah, um, I think it's pretty good. That sounds delicious. And I'm getting hungry. <laughs> okay, next one. We're in our quick fire round two now. So, um, can you please describe? We're being nosy. I'm sorry. Could you describe your desk for our audience? What What are your desks <laughs> typically like, Julian? Yes. Are you very okay. nice and tidy or are there stacks of books? Okay. So, uh, first of all, the, the first most noticeable thing about my desk is that uh, it goes up and down. So, I have a standing desk. I work probably about half my time standing up and half my time uh, sitting down. It's almost paperless, um, but there are a bunch of post-it notes around um, that are reminders for me um, to do things. Uh, there's a there's a selfie light, of course. There's a couple of good luck charms, um, and there's a picture of my children. I'll ask you a serious question now. Are there any um, useful people or websites that you know you follow um, to stay on the pulse of your industry? I mean, I think TechCrunch is is just the best resource for knowing uh, what's going on um, uh, out there in the uh, the technology uh, technology sector. Um, I'm an avid reader of The Economist. Um, it gives me political insight, business insight, and technology insight uh, as to what's going on. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk. Um, I think 
it's he has such a huge brain but also such a go forward outlook to both technology and business that um, I'm always interested in uh, what he's got to say uh, other than on Twitter in another life what could your career have been what what what, um, what would your career be so so I used to think uh, I should be a lead singer in a rock band um, of course you do uh, but I think that's just the that's just the performer in me. It's just the desire to be the guy out front. Um, it's it's certainly not that I can sing. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a I, I'm a strategist and I'm a people person. And maybe I, maybe the other way around. Maybe I'm a people person first and a strategist. So, you know, maybe maybe a coach or a or a a counselor. Um, and I'm an engineer by training, so and I I could very easily have been happy staying in engineering. How would you describe your leadership style? You, you mentioned um, in your life you could have been a a rock star at the front, but but tell us about you know your your leadership style. I mean, when I was younger, it took me a while to not be self conscious about taking a leadership role. Um, and and you know I mentioned earlier that people, the world needs leaders, and 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 so so to hesitate to lead, I think you're doing a disservice to oneself. Um, but I believe that my leadership style, I mean, certainly collaborative uh, 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 and I hope supportive. Um, I um, I remember reading a book many years ago uh, by Mark McCormack. It was called What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. And it, and it was all about, actually, it was he was talking about negotiations and he said it's about understanding where the other person's coming from and what their objectives are. But I think that, you know, in, in an organization... Every everybody's an individual forming part of a team, but it's essential to understand what their goals are, what their needs are, and where they're coming from, uh, in order to match those to the organisation's needs and goals. As we finish up, um, let me ask you: What was the best piece of, kind of uh, advice you've ever been given, perhaps in your kind of formative years, or, or really the? The best advice you've been given that that's really memorable to you, and you've you've been able to kind of use in your life. The trick is not to give up. So, you know, I've always believed that it's important to try hard, push hard, reach high, um, and you know, to take adversity as a learning experience rather than the end of the road. But the best advice that I ever got is being told that actually the trick to success is not giving up. What a good place to finish. Thank you so much for your time, Julian. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. What a wonderful chat. Nice talking to you, Maxine. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast nowhere at your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.